0: This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast.
1: The opioid crisis—it's a, a crisis indeed, uh, and especially here in the Hamilton area. This is a worldwide uh, phenomenon that seems to be occurring. Uh, some would suggest that it has just crept up on us in the last little while. That's not really the case. We're going to explore that and many other uh, sides to uh, the opioid problem here in the next uh, couple of programs. As a matter of fact, it's a five-part series that we're beginning this hour here on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. We'll be taking a look at the growing opioid crisis in our country and in particular what's been happening here in Hamilton. Uh, we're going to chat with first responders uh, as we go through the week. We're going to chat with people in the medical field, law enforcement, and we're going to talk to some people that are dealing with uh, their addictions and how they're trying to cope with those. Uh, it's not an easy road, uh, and we could tell you some of those stories, and we will as we go through the week. Joining us to kick off the, uh, the session, though, on today's program is uh, Dr. Ian Preya, who is the Chief of Emergency Medicine at St. Joseph's Hospital. Ian, thanks for coming in today. It's great to have you here. Thanks very much, Bill. Uh, Dan Kinsella, Deputy Chief of Police for Hamilton Police Services. Dan, great to have you back in here.
2: Thanks, Bill. Nice to see you.
1: And uh, Detective Constable Adam Brown, uh, Hamilton Police Services, uh special from the, uh, the Vice and Drugs <coughs> Department. Adam, thanks for being here today. Thanks, Bill. Glad to be here. Let me kick it off with uh, – I'll, I'll start with you if I could, Doctor, uh, about what you see. Uh, you could tell stories. I mean, your emergency services, the sorts of things that, that you see coming through those doors uh, at St. Joe's, and I'm sure at other ERs around the city as well.
3: Well, Bill, it's, it's alarming. When I first started working at St. Joe's, uh, the number of opiate overdoses we saw was fairly small, and it was with the population that you might have expected from watching it on TV, people who were addicted to narcotics, often of lower socioeconomic status. But over the years, over the last decade especially, we're seeing people from all walks of life, all ages, and all demographics um, coming in with overdoses or addiction issues. Um, Here at St. Joe's, uh, we work with a lot of patients with mental health issues, and among that population, they're especially vulnerable to the effects of opioids. I think the demographics that we're seeing are not people that we would generally expect. Uh, I think a lot of this has to do with how physicians are prescribing opiates, especially over the last uh, 10 or 15 years. And this is feeding into a system where people become more and more addicted to opiates and have to seek out other avenues to obtain the drugs that they desire.
1: Let's back up a bit. Maybe we should, for those who may not be fully aware of what's going on, when we use the term opiate, which is a relatively new term. It's only been around really since about the 1960s, I guess. But... uh, we, we always equate that, of course, to fentanyl, which, of course, includes fentanyl, but not exclusively fentanyl. There are a v- number of variations here, aren't there?
3: Right. So there are lots of opiates that we've used, and some of them are ubiquitous in the community. If you've ever taken a Tylenol-3 or certain cough medications, then you've taken an opiate. It's not just heroin or fentanyl or carfentanil, not just morphine. This is a broad class of drugs. And they're very useful drugs for treating pain. Imagine if you were going in for a surgery and it was going to be very painful. Of course, you would want a drug to alleviate your pain. So there is a role for these drugs in the management of pain and the medical management of a variety of medical conditions. But what we're seeing is a burgeoning number of patients who are prescribed these drugs for pain that is non-cancer pain or pain that is going to be protracted in length. And this is what's uh, perpetuating this opioid crisis.
1: So you can be exposed to this very innocently, Um I've used my example in the past, and I'll just throw it out here for discussion here today, too. I've had two knee replacements over, over the last number of years. And post-surgery, of course, you're, you're on uh, painkillers and pretty strong painkillers, I've got to tell you. And they're pretty effective. You're pushing that button a lot after you have that kind of knee replacement surgery. Uh, but you're using that stuff. And, and in some cases, you're having it prescribed to you after the fact, maybe for chronic pain. And there are a dozen, there are probably dozens of, of, of rationales for that. Uh, so you, your body is getting used to that. Uh, and, and so quite innocently, you're finding yourself getting hooked. At, at what point, doctor, do you reach the stage of, of being an addict and simply saying, I've got to have that stuff now?
3: Well, you know, Bill, if you've had a knee replacement, you know how much it hurts. Oh, yeah. right. And certainly, especially in the immediate post-op phase, you really need that medication. Yeah. But the goal is to wean yourself off the medication, right? Because the nature of your injury is that it's going to heal. What we're seeing more <clears> and more is people are prescribed large doses of potent opiates. And as your pain decreases, they're not decreasing the dose of opiates or the f- prescriber is not underscoring to them the importance of using the minimum amount of pain medication required for your, for your condition. As your body becomes exposed to opiates, you become more and more accustomed to them and it takes ever increasing doses to get the same effect. So what we're seeing is patients becoming addicted, but then that addiction feeds itself like a positive feedback loop where they need more and more. And eventually, their prescriber may feel that they're abusing it and not prescribe that, and they're forced to seek other avenues, whether it's uh, illicit drugs on the street, different kinds of opiates, um, or turning to other avenues or other prescribers.
1: I I will tell you the the ending to my story, because this happened in both cases. I had the surgeries a couple of years apart, a number of years apart. After about day three, uh, just as I was being discharged, I started to feel s- nauseous. I started to get sweats. I started to feel claustrophobic, a little paranoid. And I said, "Get that stuff away from me. I'd, I'd rather take Tylenols. I- I'm not gonna-. And I, I just uh, that seems to be the exception. And I hear stories like this, though, doctor, where people actually are uh, they get a buzz and they-, they love the feeling. I I never got that. I felt like hell going through that. And I just said, I don't want that stuff anymore. So I, I, I suppose obviously the impact it's gonna have on the individual depends very much on the individual.
3: Absolutely, and certainly I had the same experience when I had my, my surgery is I took one tablet of oxycodone and I thought I never wanna take this again. Yeah. Um, but having said that, there is a subset of patients who do uh, get a buzz off it or get uh, some kind of uh, physiologic dependence. And Then the other part of it, Bill, is that when you try to come off opiates, there are withdrawal symptoms that for some people can be intolerable. <clears throat> and unless you get guidance from your prescriber in what to expect and how to treat it, it's very difficult for folks to get off this stuff on their own.
1: Dan, uh, let's bring the, the police. I wanted to get you and Adam to comment on this because uh, uh, I think Dr. Just wrote us, Dr. Ian just wrote us a, a process here where uh, you've got somebody who may be used to having these things. Now their body starts to crave these, and the doctor may say, Look, they're not giving them you anymore. They got to find them someplace, and and obviously that's right into your wheelhouse
2: and that's in your arena, isn't it? For sure, and and uh, and we see that uh, with some regularity. And, um, you know, we have to deal that we have, with that. We have to be cognizant of it. And, uh, you know, our primary responsibility for, for people who find themselves using is to get them that safety, that treatment that they need. And, and, you know, that's why when those kind of overdose calls come into us, they get prioritized and sent to our, our paramedics. And then generally we get called to assist. So that's the environment that we find ourselves in. And, um, you know, we want to make sure that we uh, get them the treatment that they need the flip side to that for us and and, uh, Adam and myself particularly is the law enforcement piece. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have the laws of the land, we have the legislation out there, we have to uh, deal with that. Um, So oftentimes once uh, an individual finds themselves uh, treated, if they they're exposed to an overdose, uh, we will do that follow up with them. But our focus really is on the suppliers, the traffickers, um, those individuals that are are importing drugs into our community. And that's where uh, Adam and his uh, team come in um, and and do the enforcement piece for us. Where's this stuff coming from?
0: The majority of the stuff of, uh, if we're going to talk about the fentanyl side, it's going to be coming from, um, it can be produced produced in in one of two ways clandestinely, so basically in a lab with mixing chemicals here in Canada. It's happened a few times, I'm aware of. Uh, the majority and the lion's share of the illicit fentanyl coming into Canada is going to be coming through the mail from China and, to a lesser extent, Mexico. Uh, it's coming through couriers, uh, being shipped in innocuous containers. Um, generally speaking, it's of high purity, uh, being sold over the Internet, and coming into the the country, into our communities where they, it becomes cut and cuts a, a term where they add... Um, uh, other items or other mixtures like um uh different innocuous compounds to to increase the, the amount of that drug that they have and then it's sold on the streets as, as various types of uh, Now
1: my understanding products. is some of those things that are used as compounds actually are dangerous in them themselves. Absolutely. Uh, so you're just magnifying the problem then?
0: 100%. Um, the problem too is that uh, quality control isn't necessarily always on the, the, the minds of the people who are producing this stuff. Um, they aren't Pfizer, they aren't these pharmaceutical companies, so they're basically taking a recipe online or word of mouth from someone that they heard, uh, and they're mixing this and then they're selling it on the street.
1: Do we let's connect some dots here? Uh, there were a rash uh, of, of uh, break-ins at pharmacies around the area. I, I guess they continue. Uh, and some rather intricate ways of doing it. They come in through the roofs to try to avoid burglar systems and things of this nature too. Is that what they're looking for? Is opioids, painkillers? I'm aware of yet yeah, numerous uh, uh, robberies where they're they're
0: targeting the opiates, the fentanyl patches, the hydrocodones, the oxycodone tablets. Um, th- that that uh, has been happening for a number of years.
1: So I know I've seen. I'm sure other people that have been to clinics, after hour clinics and things of this nature, that actually have signs posted inside the door. We have no opiates on on, on on the site here, etc., uh, anticipating the fact that somebody's going to go cruising at night looking for some place where they can break in because they're—I guess—they're hooked. Mm-hmm. Are those are those users Dan, or are those people that want to sell the stuff?
2: Well, generally speaking, uh, it, it, it depends. To to the doctor's point. Um, once you have somebody who has become addictive and they've run out of legitimate or the the pharmaceutical source to get that narcotic, they're going to look for other ways. So I would say to your your question, it can be a mix. It could be somebody doing a quick hit, uh, whether it be at a pharmacy or an individual on the street, that they may know might have some uh, drugs on them and uh, try to steal the drugs for personal use. The other piece of it is they could be stealing larger amounts from uh, from a pharmacy if they've done their pre-work, those kind of things, um, to traffic in, in those drugs. So it, it can be a mixed bag and it really depends. And um, you know we have uh, the Vice and Drug Unit doing their work along with the Bear Unit and we try to stay ahead of these things as best we can and identify people of interest and, and continually work on them um, from the background. What are they doing? What are their habits? Collecting uh, intelligence information, all those kind of things. Y- you mentioned Adam that uh, that a lot of the stuff is coming from
1: o- offshore. Uh, who's buying it? I mean, are, are there people out there that that the troll the internet looking for sources like this and figure this is an easy way to make money?
0: I would imagine the 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 uh, the amount of money that can be made off of this is is, uh, is a selling feature for a lot of people. Um, maybe some people that don't even have a history of trafficking in in, in substances. Um, the the problem is that piece of when they're bringing that into the country the the purity of that uh, fentanyl uh, from the information that we're getting is upwards of ninety five percent and the doctor could speak to obviously the the toxicity of how small of an amount can be can can hurt or kill a, a human um, it doesn't take much once they bring that substance into the country they're not skilled in quality control um, they're not skilled in in mixing different compounds and they become affected or they you know produce a a batch that has what we call hot spots so there's there's portions of that mixture that aren't able to be cut uh uniformly uh, and then that goes on in the street and there's some doses that are fine and there's some doses that have more than the uh the amount that would take to 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 kill that person
1: Let's let's talk about dosages, Doctor. If we could, uh, if if you're going through proper medical channels, prescription. Whether it's you know T3s or or something stronger for chronic pain, uh, whatever the case might be, you get a prescription. Part of the uh, the instructions is how much the dosage should be. Take one tablet every four hours. Take one tablet once a day. Whatever the case might be when When you're hooked on something like this, what is it that drives you to say, "I, I don't care about dosage. I just I just need to get this stuff in me." I, that I'll take three pills if that's what it takes. Uh, in other words, they're not paying attention to their own safety or understanding that there will be consequences in all likelihood.
3: Right. so when I write a prescription, so well, I'll give you an example. There are nineteen million prescriptions uh, filled in retail pharmacies for opiates in Canada this year. When I write a prescription for someone for pain <clears> medication, I might write take one to two tablets every four hours as needed and then give them a number of tablets. What happens is people initially take what they need for pain, um, but if they have it readily available, especially in the absence of instructions or warnings about its addictive potential, uh, people say, well, you know, it's been a while since my last dose, I'll take it a little bit early or my pain's a little bit worse, I'll take a little bit more. And you can see how it's a slippery slope, Bill. You know? um, it's the same as if you go to the bar and have an extra drink, right? It's, a, it's not something that you do consciously to become addicted to it, but it's something that occurs and with opiates can occur very, very quickly. Um, and then the challenge uh, that we're seeing, speaking to what Adam said, is as people become more addictive, their needs grow for opiates, and they might, for example, seek it on the street and not be getting what they expect. So a lot of the Oxycontin tablets, for example, that you get on the street are actually pressed fentanyl uh, with a bunch of adulterants, and you have no clue what you're getting. You know, uh, I'll give you an example. Suppose someone gets um, a piece of carfentanyl the size of a green pea in the mail from China, and they mix it up in a tub at their house, right? They mix it with some inert substance. There's no way to know which part of that tub of goo you're gonna get. And you might get one that has 40 micrograms or you might get 100 micrograms. But the fact is that pea-sized piece of carfentanil is probably enough to cause toxicity in every single person in this building. Right? And to mix it appropriately, I mean, it's it's not something you can do in your bathtub in your apartment,
1: right? How do you, I got a little minute left here before I have to do a break. Uh, <laughs> How does the human mind work when you know of the, the, the dangers? You've just explained them to us. Uh, we've, we've heard about this and in, in, in the news. We've heard about some of the overdose deaths that you're flirting with possible death if you do this, that you could harm yourself. Is, is there a little voice in the back of your head that says, yeah, but that's not going to happen to me. I know what I'm doing. Or, or is the, the urge just so overwhelming that you don't give a damn?
3: I think it's very hard outside of the context of being addicted to a substance to understand the need that you have Mm -hmm. for it, the urge for it. And I think it is unreasonable to expect people to be able to control that on their own and to be able to control that urge and the withdrawal and the urgency, right? It's easy for me to say, just don't take it, it's gonna kill you. But in the moment, when you're feeling that, it's a very different kettle of fish.
1: i reintroduce our studio panel. Dr. Ian Pereira is here, Chief of Emergency Medicine at St. Joseph's Hospital. Uh, Dan Kinsella, Deputy Chief of Police for Hamilton Police Services. Uh, Detective Constable Adam Brown uh, with the Vice and Drug Squad uh, for Hamilton Police Services as well. Uh, I want to talk about uh, what what you guys find on the street in just a couple of seconds, Adam. But uh, there was a point, uh, Doctor, that you were making just before the break. About about addiction and and dealing with uh, with somebody who is totally addicted um, and and we need probably s- state something here too that uh, oftentimes when you play word association and you talk about addicts, uh, some people may conjure up the image of uh, somebody who's on skid Row maybe a homeless person and well yeah, they're homeless isn't that too? Bad? These are not the people that you're seeing i mean that they, there may be that element there too, but uh, the stories that I have seen about this, and Global News did a, a, a report on this a couple of weeks ago, a doctor who was hooked on, on opioids, on, on fentanyl specifically, uh, you're seeing doctors, you're seeing lawyers, you're seeing people in the professions. I mean, this, this is affecting everybody, all walks of life.
3: Absolutely. So I think it's really important to understand, Belt, that these are the folks that you meet when you take your kid to hockey, right? These are the people who are with you in the grocery store. These are people that work with you, right? Right. And uh, it's not confined to people of lower socioeconomic status or people with mental health, pre-existing mental health problems. It's, it's everyone. Now, certain people are more at risk. Certainly, uh, poverty contributes to addictions, and mental health problems can contribute to addictions. But, but there's no discrimination, right? And uh, any person can become, can become addicted. And it drags you down, right? It drags down the life that you've created for yourself. It drags the life of the people uh, who care about you. Um, and it affects not just you, <coughs> but everyone around you. Uh, and certainly there are, there are so many stories, stories that I tell my kids about, you know, regular people like you and me, you know, not people on a mattress in a, in a crack house uh, whose lives get ruined um, by drugs of all sorts, but it's, but especially uh, especially opiates
1: well the doctor to I who was, I was referring from the global news i mean he's he's about to be sentenced I and mean, he's already been convicted uh, he's lost his, his livelihood obviously he lost his family uh, the impact that uh, that this can have on families and on individuals is is devastating clearly i mean the worst case scenario is death but there's there's a lot of other things that can happen that can can totally have a, a negative impact on your lives
3: absolutely and and we see it every day and the big challenge though is obtaining help for an acute uh, overdose is really easy, right? You come in and you treat them and you get better, but then what? right? Do we have the resources to offer the kind of help that folks need to actually get better, to deal with their addictions, to deal with their withdrawal, to get support for their underlying mental illness? And that's one of the things St. Joe's as uh, a psychiatric hospital and a center for mental health and addictions it is trying to work on. It's like not just saving someone's life when they come in overdosed but changing someone's life when they come in overdosed and giving them that opportunity. And if they fail, saying, here, we have another opportunity for you and another one, because it is unreasonable to expect people to come out of this and hit a home run in their first chance at rehab. And it's completely unreasonable for us to say that we're going to treat you and street you and see you tomorrow.
1: Adam, uh, policing in 2017. You go to Aylmer to the police college, you, you learn the criminal code, you learn the Highway Traffic Act, you learn everything else that you're supposed to learn through this. Now, because of, of the work that you're doing in, in the vice and drug squad right now, I mean, you, you almost need a medical degree to be able to deal and identify a number of the things that you run across on a daily basis.
0: And that's one of the problems is being able to identify and there's so many things out there and, and, and you know, so many things that are mixed with other things that... Uh, well, what's
1: this popcorn mix that we heard about?
0: Popcorn is a uh, street slang term that uh, is uh, to indicate a substance that's a mixture of heroin and fentanyl. Uh, Generally, it can be either in powdered form. um, (coughs) It can be um, mixed with other substances that turns it into something that looks more like crack cocaine, more of a hard, rocky type substance. Uh, Generally speaking, the the reasons why they call it popcorn, there's two different um, uh, reasons that we're getting on the streets. One is that the hard rock substance actually... Sometimes has a physical appearance to, similar to popcorn, and the other is that it actually gives off an odor similar to burnt popcorn when it's when it's uh, burnt and inhaled.
1: Dan. I, I don't want to give me you know scripture and vote on how you actually fight this stuff, because I don't want the bad guys to find out, but but how do you deal with something that seems like an overwhelming trend that's happening right now? I mean, we were shocked some months ago, I guess, when we heard that liquid fentanyl was found on the streets here in Hamilton, uh, and and that's not the worst of it, according to what Adam's telling us and some other stuff. It just must seem as if this is almost a tsunami of, 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 of problems that are, are, are starting to flow into this city, but this... Uh, how do you how do you develop resources for for something like this? I mean, you could probably put every officer on any particular shift onto this 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 protocol itself, and forget about everything else.
2: Yeah, and and that's a good point because uh, it is a challenge and it's not easy and it's not only a police problem. So we're, we, we're working currently, you know, with, with Public Health and um, uh, St. Joe's and, and the General and, um, you know, other uh, agencies to kind of come up with a strategy because to the doctor's point, um, yeah, once the treatment's done and it's time to go home, how do we help them? How do we support them in the community? So uh, that's first and foremost, recognizing that it's just not a problem for us. So we have to work together at it and we are doing that. And then the other piece of it is is uh, making sure that all of the members on the Hamilton Police Service have the proper training and Adam uh, is is at the, the forefront of that. He's uh, the officer within our service who's attending uh, with others, but but Adam's got the point on it. So we rely on that kind of information to come forward. What's happening on the street? What are we seeing new? You know, I'll, I could come in and, and uh, I, last couple weeks, I think it was dirty fentanyl. Somebody was talking about dirty fentanyl and prior to that it was popcorn and um, it's not fentanyl based, but then there was an Another drug shatter. So we're dealing with all these things. We have to stay ahead of it. The other piece of that is the communication with other agencies that we're working with. And public health is doing a real good job with that right now. We're putting alert outs, we're sharing the information uh, to try to get ahead of emerging trends in the illicit uh, drug trade. And, uh, you know, we've, we've made the point, you just never know what they're, they're mixing, whether it be baking soda, rat poison, or who knows what they're they're mixing as cutting agents um, with these drugs. And uh, it's difficult, but we have to stay vigilant. We have to try to stay on anti- of it, and we will always continually respond. Is that stuff being done right here in
1: Hamilton? Are there, are there shops right here in Hamilton that are doing making this stuff up? We don't have information
0: of that right yet. Um, obviously, that's information that we're always interested in getting from the public. If if the public has information that the stuff is being mixed up, you know, we are definitely looking and eager to investigate those types of uh, of offenses. Um, but as of yet, we don't have that information
1: you've already told us about a lot of the stuff coming in offshore, et cetera, like this, but, but clearly there's, there's some people that are freelancing with this stuff once they get their hands on it and decide how they want to, 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 to I guess, obviously construct it for what they want to sell. Uh, this stuff can't be cheap.
0: Surprisingly, it is. Really? Um, I, I'm not going to go into the, the numbers exactly, but yeah, if you, like I said, it's sold online through different uh, online retailers and sometimes the dark web as well. Uh, the mode of currency, generally speaking, is either Bitcoin or Western Union to, for anonymity for the, for the buyers and suppliers. Um, it doesn't take much to bring, in, and again, you know, it's a small amount that uh, is needed to, and then once mixed with a larger amount of, generally speaking, it's caffeine powder, but once that's mixed together, that produces a, a large amount of a drug that's able to be sold on the streets. Um, so the, the, the profit margins are, are quite high.
1: Dan, let's let's talk for a minute about the impact this is having on. I was talking about the, the work and and the work <coughs> and the, the the education that Adam and, and his crew have to go through to to try to be up to speed on this sort of thing. Uh, but the impact this is having on on the rest of the community. I mean, people, for instance, that are are hooked on this stuff, that need this stuff, and need to get their hands on this stuff. Uh, if they don't have the money they're, they're probably committing other crimes to be able to get
2: the money so there are spinoff off negative effects to this too aren't there absolutely and, and you know with with drugs in general um, and it's, it's kind of across the board there generally, generally is some sort of violence that is associated or or we can project that there will be some sort of violence there will also be some associated crime potentially you mentioned it earlier in the show when we talked about the B&Es for yeah. you know stealing and those kind of things so uh, we have to be prepared for that we have to make sure that not only are we keeping the community that's our, our paramount responsibility, but we got to keep our officers safe as well. So we constantly uh, have to be aware of what's happening, whether it's geography-wise, um, you know, different parts of, of the city, and we're following trends. And, you know, just this morning when I came into work, I got a report on uh, the fentanyl um, contacts over the weekend and other drug-related offenses and the robberies and the assaults and all those kind of things that happen. So, um, you know, those things are, are constantly being monitored. And, and, you know, part of my job is making sure that I put the resources in the right area and if if adam needs something more it's my job to get adam something more and uh you know that goes across all the different areas that i look after we we've had a a,
1: what some people consider a rise in 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 gun violence uh, in this area as well now i know you can't talk about any one specific case because many of them are still uh, under investigation right now but is there a link there that You mentioned, obviously, that the violence could actually be an offshoot of this right now. Uh, the fact that we've seen more shootings in this area than maybe we're used to, or we want to see one is one too many, of course. Uh, is that related to, to the increase in, in the, the drug trade that we're talking about here?
2: Uh, yeah, for sure it is, because what's happening is people are, are uh, acquiring guns to protect Whatever they need to protect, so the people that want to come and, and uh, you know the would be uh, thief who wants to come and steal that they need to have something that 's going to allow them to do that so uh, we 're seeing that, and that's that's quite an element of danger there as well that 's why we have working closely with our vice and drug unit, we have our emergency response unit, and all those uh, other support um, uh, services that we have to make sure that that we are uh, bringing the appropriate level of force whenever we 're dealing with any of these issues, and there are certain Uh, warrants that we will execute using a vast array of police resources. And that is designed not only to protect the people that that may be inside the house or the people that may get arrested, but it's also there to protect the community and the officers.
1: You're you're double-barreled duty with what you're doing, Adam. Obviously, you're trying to find out where this stuff is coming from. You're trying to find the people that are selling it. Uh, at the same time, though, you're running across people that are overdosing on it right now, and that's that's a, an, another element to the work that you have to do right now. And we've had the discussion about naloxone and and whether or not officers should be carrying that, or first responders should be carrying that, uh, and the incidents of finding people that have, have shot up in a in a washroom or in an alley or something like this. It's 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 got to be troubling. Uh, policing is tough enough, but when you run across something like that. Uh, uh, you know, police are human too, and, and and they've got to deal with the the emotion of what they're doing as well.
0: Yeah, and, and for me, from the from the vice and drug perspective, my goal is the the investigation of those importers, the traffickers, taking a look at the drugs that have been seized. What are they being mixed with? What tips of uh, types of we've had four different uh, uh, analogs of fentanyl found in the city. So is there um, is there a reason around that? So that's my my job is to to figure out where's it coming from, who's dealing it. Um, how do we get ahead of that? How do we stop that? How do we, how do we deal with that problem?
1: So Frustrating about, about dealing with the chemistry of this, and I don't want to get too deeply into that, doctor, but but we, I mentioned naloxone, and, and that's been talked about now as, as something that on-site, when you see somebody who is overdosed, uh, my understanding uh, is that if the fentanyl itself or the whatever the opioid might be that, that the person may have overdosed on right now, uh, the effect it has on the body is actually from a respiratory standpoint. In other words, you, they, they die of basically suffocation. They can't breathe.
3: Well, I think there are a couple things about opiates. Right? And, and,
1: and then the second part of that is what does, what does the noxone actually do to try to, to curtail them?
3: <coughs> right. So there are a whole bunch of different kinds of opiates, Bill. Okay. Uh, and one of the things that differentiates between them is their potency and then how long they last, right? So something like fentanyl, for example, has a really short half-life, so it's on, and then it's off very quickly. Something like OxyContin will be in your system for hours and hours. They both have the same effects, and that is they depress your, your ability to breathe, they cause increased secretion in your lungs, they decrease your level of consciousness. And so it's true that these folks who take large overdoses, they, they stop breathing and they suffocate. Um, but uh, naloxone works in the same way for all the opiates. The problem is, if I take, for example, OxyContin, and I have an overdose, and then I take Naloxone, for five minutes, I might feel great. I might feel back to normal, and I might not call 911 because I say, you know, I'm I'm back. And then when the Naloxone wears off, I still have four to six hours of OxyContin toxicity on board. And we even see that in Emerge. We see people come in essentially near death. We give them antidotal therapy with Naloxone, and they decide they want to take out their IVs, and they want to go. And at that moment, they're competent to go, and it's hard for us to say we're going to stop you.
1: Um, But they could collapse on the street.
3: They almost certainly will collapse on the street. Right? Is it one hundred percent predictable that that's going to happen to them? Right? Just because. But they're not feeling that right there. Right. And then the other thing is, suppose someone takes carfentanil. Well, a single dose of naloxone from a naloxone kit is not going to be effective in that case. Right. So they're going to need larger doses, and they're going to need care in an emergency department. And one of the things that, that I really worry about with carfentanil is that folks will think that they're safe because they have their naloxone kit in their pocket and they are not safe. Right?
1: So it's, it's, a, it's a false sense of security, really. Absolutely. That it may, on, in some cases, it may provide temporary relief. but it's, uh, And it's certainly not going to cure the addiction either, is it? Right. I mean, they may end up doing the same thing again the next day.
3: Absolutely. And, in fact, paradoxically, if someone's addicted to opiates and they take naloxone, receptors are going to be bound they're going to go into withdrawal and they're going to need more opiates and that's something we're seeing also you know people are taking this naloxone as a, as a fail-safe almost just in case but then they take it and they feel so awful that they have to take more fentanyl or heroin or whatever it is they're going to take
1: is it true uh, with opioids that, uh, as with some other medicines that uh, obviously the, the the purpose the short-term purpose for people that are taking them is, is for pain relief etc chronic pain whatever the case might be but but constant use of them or overuse of these or overdosing of this it actually increases the pain and actually works on the the other end of the spectrum.
3: Well, I think you, I think you can see that. What you see mostly with opiates is this idea of tolerance, and that is that you need ever escalating doses to uh, reach the same result. So people's body become intolerant to them, uh, and then when they don't have the opiates, they can have exaggerated senses of their pain or discomfort in summative effects with the effects of withdrawal. I mean, if you were making uh, something that you wanted to sell and make money off of, you would want something that people need more and more and more and more of. And that's exactly what opiates are, right? It's it's a self-perpetuating drug that increases demand for itself over time at so the expense of people's lives.
1: Somebody comes through the doors and, and they're in that circumstance and, and you give them well, this naloxone or whatever it might be. Uh, <laughs> Do you ask questions? Are you allowed to ask questions about how they got this stuff, what they took? where? They, uh, I, I mean, there's the possibility that, that, that this was, you know, gained illegally. You don't know that. But they can just walk out at any time from what you're telling us. Absolutely. It's got to be frustrating for the staff <coughs> in the ER then.
3: i got to say, as a doc, though, you almost don't want to know, right? Because it really breaks down your ability to reach someone. If you're asking them about their illegal activities, people are, uh, you know, are going to be secretive about this. And that's one of the problems that police officers often have is that people won't talk to them. Right. Why would you? They're afraid you're going to get in trouble. And and it must be so frustrating for a first responder to see someone and to reach out to help them and get a stone wall because they're afraid of who you are by your position.
1: Um, Dan, you, they you must see that constantly when you run into people that are, are victimized by this, and maybe are, are victims
2: of overdose. For sure, uh, they, they want to say nothing. And a lot of times, what we're finding, uh, to a couple of the points that the doctor made, the the. Um, the naloxone that's out there is oftentimes being administered by friends, associates, mm-hmm. somebody else who's in the room when an overdose occurs, and uh, there are occasions when when police or EMS don't get called, um, and we got to remember it is a medical emergency. The paramedics go; they get dispatched. We get dispatched to support, but there is a lot of people that don't want to talk to us. They don't want to share the information, whether it be because they don't want to identify their their supplier because they won't get anymore, or whether uh, you know they just don't want to get. Get in trouble themselves, and oftentimes we find signs and symptoms of of drug use when we arrive. There's sometimes extra product that has to be seized, and all those kind of things that have to occur. So um, it is a real challenge for us, and it's a particular challenge when individuals take the naloxone and and they get up and they're good for five minutes, and they say, "See ya, police. We are we, were going to move on our way now," um, and 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 away they go. So depending on the circumstances, um, you know, and what else is present, uh, you know, we have certain things that we can do, but the primary goal is to get them to that after incident treatment at hospital because really that's where they have to go and they have to be there for a while to make sure they're going to be okay the bill kelly show weekdays from nine to noon on am 900 chml